Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We ask thee that in this hour thou shalt reach the hearts of thy people. Thou knowest their needs. And we pray thee that, as thy word goes forth, that it shall be in such demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit that men shall turn their thoughts toward thee and receive the blessing that thou art so willing to give us. We ask all these things in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. During these summer months, we're studying together the great book of Revelation and come at this time to the last paragraph in the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, which is a panorama of the climax of God's judgments upon the earth. Now, we must not forget that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is coming again. But his coming is in many different phases, just as his first coming was 33 years long and included his birth and his death. So the second coming has a phase in connection with the true church and also a phase in connection with the apostate church, a phase in connection with God's ancient people, the Jews, and a phase in connection with the nations, the goyim, the heathen, and a phase in connection with the dust of the ground, with Satan and his angels, with the planets, all things are to come under judgment. Now in this 11th chapter, in the 13th verse, there is a the beginning of a summary. I, I will read a few verses. It says, At that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to thee, Lord God Almighty, who art and who wast, that thou hast taken thy great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but thy wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, the time for rewarding thy servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear thy name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyer of the earth. Now, some of God's judgments are very slow in appearing. Others fall like his lightning. The judgment that follows the martyrdom and resurrection of the two witnesses which we saw in our last study is instantaneous. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and seven thousand men were killed. Is this a statement of literal earthquake and slaughter, or is there symbolism that must yield up its light from other portions of the word? If it is a literal earthquake, we have little to stop us in our study. The account is as definite as a cable dispatch from the far corners of the world, announcing succinctly that a major disaster has taken place and that the loss of lives and property has reached a certain figure. It may well be that there is nothing more in view here than a trembling of the earth with the falling of stone walls and the crushing of human bodies. There is, however, an alternative which must be given at least passing consideration. Earthquakes are frequently found in the scriptures as symbols of great upheavals in the realm of government, as well as in the social and spiritual order. We have commented on this at length in our discussion of the great earthquake back in chapter 6 and verse 12. In our present passage, we have certain details, however, that need to be touched in passing. It says the tenth part of the city fell. The Lord had expressly declared to Israel that the tenth belonged to him. In Leviticus 27, this whole principle was set forth that the tithe is the Lord's. Any failure to pay the tithe involved heavy judgments from God. The fact that Israel had become lax in this matter withholding that which had thus been set apart as God's own, is given as the reason for the curse that had fallen upon the people in the days of Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. But God will always collect that which is his due. Men may refuse the tithe to him, but they will lose ten-tenths as a result. I've pointed out in church meetings many a time that every Christian does pay a tithe, whether he thinks so or not. He either gives it or it's taken from him. You are always given enough on which to live. And if you give your tithe to God, why, then God will go on blessing you. But you hold back and you say, oh, I, I can't do this. I, I need it for something personal. And then all of a sudden the moth eats your coat or someone bumps your fender and you have a runner in your stocking and you pay the extra $60 or $80 for the coat or the $50 repair bill for the fender or the dollar or two for the stockings and God is collecting his tithe that you didn't give him. He'll always get that which is his own. And then the text says that the, literally the names of 7,000 men were killed. Now the use of the word names here is most peculiar. Some have thought it to be merely a figure of speech to express the ordinary fact that 7,000 men were killed. But we're wondering if it is not possible to find here a full explanation of the passage which has caused some difficulty to those who are not grounded in the sure word of the certainty of salvation for those who have been born again. In the letter to the church in Sardis, in the third chapter of Revelation, the Lord stated that he would not blot out of the scroll of life the names of the overcomers. Is this not further proof that there is a book containing the record of every individual who was ever born into this lost world? God has a census of all human beings. The day comes when in his sight they have rejected him beyond any hope of salvation. Spiritual judgment falls. Their names are blotted out of the book of life. Of course, they have never been written in the Lamb's book of life, which is quite different in its meaning and in its extent. The great upheaval of this time, whether it be a literal earthquake or another major outbreak of anarchy, causes great fear to come into the hearts of those who escape. They're filled with terror and they give glory to the God of heaven. It is an awesome revelation of the human heart that men should kill the two witnesses sent by the God of heaven to the earth, even while recognizing his existence in heaven and while being filled with terror of him. It's one more proof that the carnal mind is enmity against God. Their glorifying God does not come from repentant hearts. Rather, it's like that glory given to God when Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain. In Luke 7, we read it, there came a fear on all, and they glorified God. The same thing is seen with a sharp contrast in the two types of glorifying after the Lord had healed a paralytic. The healed man, we read, departed to his own house, glorifying God, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God but how different the two. This upheaval constitutes the second of the three woes announced under the fourth trumpet. The third is to follow speedily. Handel has chosen the passage that follows as part of the text for his famous Hallelujah Chorus. We must recognize the necessity of the slight revision that is given to the translation in versions translated in modern times. This world is one kingdom even though men may have divided it into many units. The Lord recognized the right of the ruler he had placed over the world at the beginning and clearly gave him his title, the prince of this world. And we shall never understand this passage and the chapter that follows unless we realize a little of Lucifer's history. Lucifer, the anointed cherub that governed, was perfect in all his ways, from the day he was created until iniquity was found in him, we read in Ezekiel 28. He was God's prophet, priest, and king. He spoke for God to the universe as prophet. He took the worship of the universe to God as priest. 
He ruled over the universe for God as king. When he sinned, he had aspired to be like the Most High, taking worship unto himself. And thus he had lost the office of priest. God no longer spoke through him, a sinful channel. He therefore lost his office of prophet. But he still retained his office of king. His title was clearly recognized by the Lord Jesus. We know from many portions of Scripture that the father of lies was telling the truth for once at the time of the temptation of our Lord, where he said in Luke 9, The devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. The Lord Jesus refused to take back the power from Satan by some easy way. God was not going to snatch it back as though he had made a mistake, and now saw better. He was going to proceed according to his eternal plan. By virtue of the death of the Lord Jesus, he would provide the basis and the groundwork for the removal of the power from the usurper who had been made prince of this world and who had become God of this age. He would do this in his own good time, and that time is now announced. The kingdom, singular, not plural, the kingdom of this world is become that of our Lord and of his Christ. Now appears the reason why we have entitled this study The Great Panorama. This verse and those immediately following, all of which come under the sound of the seventh trumpet, contain the announcement of many events, in fact, the summary of all that will be studied down to the end of the book of Revelation. We can best describe it under the following analogy. The heralds of William of Normandy announced as they landed on the sands of England that the kingdom of that island had become the possession of the Duke of Normandy. A historian might begin his account with the words of the herald, then continue in a sentence saying that the land was now given over to the followers of the Norman, and that the doom of those who resisted was sure. Then after this panoramic view, the recital might turn to the Battle of Hastings, and then at long length to the settling of the country, the division of the land, and the subsequent peace. Or we have still another analogy from the Old Testament. In a passage that is very similar in construction, to that which we are now studying. The heavenly messenger brought to Daniel the interpretation of the seventy periods of seven years, which he had seen in the vision. In one brief verse, the messenger Gabriel covered all the rest of world history. He said, Seventy heptads, a heptad is a, like a decade is ten years, a heptad is seven years, seventy heptads are determined upon thy people, and upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now it can readily be seen that it takes very little discernment to understand that there are vast periods of time between some of these events. Those clauses which speak of the death of the Savior are readily identifiable. But with no more than a comma in between, the following clause speaks of the bringing in of everlasting righteousness. But of course that is still in the future, as we all know. Now we ourselves are living in the time of that comma between the two phrases. The words spoken by the great voices announce the taking over of the kingdom power. The details of the transfer of power will be seen when we come to the war in heaven, described in the next chapter, Revelation 12. Another great error is also eliminated by a clause in this verse. The reign of Christ is stated to be forever and ever. In the Greek it is literally, unto the ages of the ages. Some have claimed that there is no eternal punishment of sinners. They take the passage which speaks of their torment as existing forever and ever to mean a limited time with a definite terminus. But we answer simply that the duration of the doom of the wicked 
is described in the same terms that are used here to depict the duration of the reign of Christ. That should settle the question. Now, the announcement by the great voices of the approaching sovereignty of Christ has a profound effect upon those who are in heaven. We have examined at some length the identity of the twenty-four elders when we studied the fourth of Revelation, seeing in them the symbols of the church and of the elect of Israel. How long they have waited for this moment. The announcement of its coming now causes them to leave their thrones and to prostrate themselves before the Lord in worship. Now, after all these ages, the time of vindication of the Lord is about to take place. Is it any wonder that we join in this worship? We give thanks to thee, O Lord God the Almighty, the one who is and who was, because thou hast taken thy great power and didst reign. It should be noted that the clause, and art to come, is not in the original Greek. It was probably added by some copyist, and thus crept into some of the later manuscripts, but the best authorities omit it, and certainly it should be omitted. Its absence in the oldest manuscripts is another proof of the detailed accuracy of the whole of the Bible revelation. He is now taking the power and is beginning to reign. Some have seen confusion in the change of tense that is so clearly seen in the Greek. For the text distinctly does not say what the King James Version says. The revisers and other modern translators have all joined in showing the change of tense. We have rendered it in thou hast taken thy great power and didst begin to reign. Robertson, one of the greatest of the Greek authorities, says of this sentence, thou hast taken is the perfect active indicative emphasizing the permanence of God's rule. Thou hast assumed thy power. Didst reign is the ingressive first aorist active indicative. Didst begin to reign. This comment is strong evidence for the moment when the actual reigning of Christ begins. Not yet is the world under his kingship, but that day will come and is what is described here. The 18th verse is composed of different clauses which describe events that are more than a thousand years apart. There are three lines of truth in the verse. There is God's dealing with the earth rebels, with the saints, and with the invisible forces of Satan. First, we see here the announcement of God's dealing with the unsaved. The nations were angry, and thy wrath came in the time of the dead to be judged. The first clause is the fulfillment of the second psalm. Why do the nations rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. There was a partial fulfillment of this at the first coming of the Lord Jesus, but the main anger of the nation now comes to its highest fermentation. Like the victims of depressive psychosis, whose madness recurs again and again in increasing frequency and intensity, the poor, insane world rages out its hate against the Creator. Heretofore, he has been patient, but it has been written for thousands of years that his patience will come to an end. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure, we read in the second psalm. Now all this is to be found in our phrase, and thy wrath came. The utter simplicity of the statement marks its divine origin. Only God could speak of such stupendous matters in a way that is not casual, but powerful in its artless reality. The following phrase carries us over to the 20th chapter of Revelation for its complete fulfillment. The time of the dead to be judged. 
is very definitely fixed in scriptures as coming after the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. This means that the vision in the verse we are studying covers the whole of the period of the day of the Lord. The millennium is in the comma between the two clauses. This is a well-known biblical phenomenon. The whole of the age in which we live is to be found in a comma between two clauses in Isaiah 61, as our Lord demonstrated by stopping there when he read the passage in the synagogue at Nazareth as recorded in the gospel. The same principle is observed in the passages which speak of his two comings in the same verse and in the passage describing the order of the resurrection. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15 we read, Every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward, by about 2,000 years, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then, after the millennium, then cometh the end. And so it is here. The full scope of God's dealing with rebel men is spanned in one sentence. Those who are his own are next seen. The time to give the reward to thy bond slaves the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name. There are three classifications of believers, and there is no difficulty in identifying them. The prophets are the Old Testament believers, the saints are the recipients of grace in our age today, while those who fear his name are the ones who shall believe on him during the reign of the Antichrist. We can readily understand that the Old Testament saints have not yet received their reward, God having provided some better thing for us that they, without us, should not be made perfect, as we read in Hebrews 11.40. The reward of the tribulation saints is but a moment after. Then there is one final phrase, to destroy them which destroy the earth. This refers to those spirit beings who have followed the one who is called the destroyer. They are carefully separated from those who are called the nations. The event is the fulfillment of the double prophecy, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings that are of earth that are upon the earth. This is in Isaiah 24. There can be no doubt that here is a division that recognizes Satan and his followers on the one side and the earthlings on the other. Thus, God's judgment will deal righteously with all beings. We live here in the middle of the 20th century. We have the Word of God in our hands. During the course of the past centuries, there have been people who have laughed at the book of Revelation. Its language was difficult to understand, and before modern inventions, it was almost mythological in every aspect. Men laughed at it and thought that the things that were written here could never come to pass. Shortly after the destruction of Hiroshima, the dean of one of the greatest theological seminaries in the United States said in a church while preaching there one Sunday morning that the bomb on Hiroshima had also destroyed the sermon barrels of thousands of ministers as all of their talk about bringing righteousness upon the earth was now out of date and that we could not expect that man would be able to bring righteousness upon the earth by his unaided efforts. How true this is. Because the reason for the fulfillment of prophecy is in order to demonstrate to the human race that man can do nothing for himself ultimately. Man is always striving, and when in one quarter of the world he is enabled to get a civilization that is reasonably good, why, then he boasts proudly that he is about to bring righteousness and peace upon all the earth. But let's face the fact, there are two and a half billion people in the earth today, two and a quarter to two and a half billion people, but how many of them have any type of prosperity? How many of them have any type of sanitation? How many of them have any type of health service? Oh, yes, we, we live here in the States, and we look out on our television sets, and we see our magazines. We get into our fine cars, and we go here and there, 
And it's always said that one half of the world doesn't know how the other half of the world lives. Well, the fact is that our 20th of the world doesn't know how the other 1920ths live. On what a low scale they all live. How desperate is the need of so many millions and tens of millions of people this day. But God is going to intervene. Righteousness is going to come upon this world. And it will come by means of God through men bringing to pass things which will bring all sin under judgment, then it is that the kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall send his angels, and they shall pluck out all things that offend and all persons that offend. How happy I am that in this year I still have the privilege of saying that the day of grace is open. I still have the joyous privilege of saying to you, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If then you will come to Christ today, he will give you life, and you shall be kept from the hour of trial that shall come upon the world. And our God, we pray thee to use this word today. Oh, thou knowest the condition of the world and the need of thy people, but thou knowest thy sovereign power and grace. Thou hast not left us in ignorance. Thou hast given us the revelation of the book. May we know thee follow thee, love thee. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou art our God, and that thou dost daily reveal thyself to us. And we pray thee that today, as thy word goes forth, that it may be in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, that our faith may stand not in human wisdom, but in thy power, O our God. Speak to each listening heart, to the unsaved to bring conviction of sin, to the believer to bring comfort, hope, and strength in times of need. And we'll give thee all the glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're studying in the end of the 11th chapter and the beginning of the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, let's just have one word concerning the place of the book of Revelation. It is prophetic. We're living in the midst of the 20th century. There are great events yet to come upon this world. The Lord Jesus Christ is to return. Now the second coming of Christ is going to have many different events many different phases, and is going to cover a period of many years. There is to be blessing, and there is to be judgment. There is to be reward for the believers, and there is to be separation for the unbelievers. Now in the end of the 11th chapter, in the beginning of the 12th, we have the setting forth of the eternal plan. We read, And a great wonder, a portent, appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth and anguish for delivery. And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now we have here the picture of a judgment, and we must realize that judgment proceeds from the very nature of God himself. There are many people who no longer believe in the terrors that flow from the justice and holiness of God simply because they have lost the sense of the justice and holiness of God. One of the marks of false teachers of our day is their common denial of God's punishment of sin. To destroy the certain teaching of the word of God concerning the eternal destiny of the wicked 
is one of the chief works of those who have introduced false cults. A great Bible teacher has said of those who deny these truths, the impression is created by them that till they came no one ever knew the truth of God. An intellectual superiority is likewise in evidence. They reason with the shrewdness of a trained lawyer. They use Greek of which they know little. They quote a few words of Hebrew of which they know less. But somehow these men always lead on to the denial of something concerning the future state. We read in a current publication, Endless punishment is no longer accepted and proclaimed as it was among those who resolutely adhere to the foundation truths of the gospel. The conviction prevails, though many may not express themselves fully, that the doctrine in its old, legal, mechanical, sensuous form of statement is not true. In its creedal form, it is not believed by the people. The impression prevails that conviction deepens that the doctrine needs revision and restatement. But all this is a part of the apostasy. The Word of God tells us very plainly that the source of judgment is the same as the source of mercy. Both flow from the heart of God. Both are essential to his nature. Both can be understood only at the cross of Jesus Christ. The last verse of the 11th chapter gives us the source of all the judgment messages that follow. After the summary which we have just considered, which covers the whole of the great and terrible day of the Lord, our God reveals to us his innermost sanctuary, the symbol of his holiness, and shows us that judgment flows from there. To deny the reality of his judgments is to deny the reality of his holiness. Yes, it's to deny the essential nature of God, and in one sense is to class oneself with the atheists. The Old Testament again reveals to us the secret of the interpretation of our passage. By way of the epistle to the Hebrews, we proceed back to the writings of Moses, and all will become clear. The former temple and the tabernacle of Moses followed the pattern revealed by God, which was a definite pattern of things in the heavens. Here we are suddenly given a vision of the inner sanctuary of heaven, the Holy of Holies, and there we find the ark of God strikingly and startlingly revealed. To one who reads the whole Bible through for the first time, the ark of God must take a very important position. It is the center of much in the Old Testament. But there comes a time when it's taken from our view and we hear not one word of it. The New Testament opens and proceeds on its course. Here and there a little light is shed revealing some of the meanings of the ancient symbols. But when we come to the last book of the Bible, we're far removed from thoughts of the ark of God until suddenly, when we have our minds set upon the completion of the great plan which has been announced, we're brought sharply before the ark of God once more. Now we're convinced that the ark of God in Old Testament symbol represented the throne of God itself. One commentator whom we are seldom able to quote favorably because he has the church and Israel so confused is very clear on this one point. He says the ark was the place of God's holy presence of whom it was said that he dwelleth between the cherubim. It is the throne of righteousness and judgment for these are declared to be the habitations of his throne. But that throne becomes the throne of grace when the slain and risen Lamb occupies it, after having borne for us the just judgment of God, and having fulfilled all righteousness by his sacrificial death. Nothing more need be said in order to identify the Ark of the Covenant with the throne of God in heaven. With this paragraph we are in hearty accord. One reason that the throne is presented to us under its symbolical name is to remind us of the process by which it was revealed to us in the Old Testament. The ark was made of wood and covered with gold when Moses made it according to the detailed pattern which God gave him. Now in this double construction, it is a picture of the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had the perfect human nature, 
perfectly clothed with the divine nature. He was and is man. He was and is God. He must be approached with reverence. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, but he that does the will of the Father in heaven may come to the holy presence of Jesus Christ. To do the will of the Father, he has declared to us, is to believe in the Son. Therefore, there can be no approach to the Father except by the cross where the redemption from sin has taken place. The high priest of Israel never approached the ark which was hidden behind the great veil of the temple except he had first fulfilled all of God's appointed demands. A bullock had been slain for his sins and a goat for the sins of the people. The blood was taken in God's appointed way and at his appointed moment and placed between the cherubim on the mercy seat. All this was given in order to impress upon the people who at that period were still childish and ignorant that which is expressed in the great charter of the holiness of God. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Woe unto that religious person who thinks that he may approach God without the atoning work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Fire had gone out from the presence of God and had lighted the sacrifice on the altar which Aaron had dressed on the day of the opening of the tabernacle service. Fire had lighted the offering and had consumed it. Fire went out from that same presence of the Lord and struck Nadab and Abihu, who dared approach his presence without due regard for the conditions which he had laid down. Now, here we are given one more indication that the lightnings, the voices of judgment, the thunders, the earthquake, and the great hail, all of which symbols of judgment we have studied as we have come to them in the earlier chapters, that all come from the throne of God. The Lord will judge sin. The Lord will condemn rebellion. The Lord's patience will come to its righteous end. The Lord will vindicate his name and the honor of those who have trusted in his word. His throne is pledged to the fulfillment of his eternal purposes. Those who have trusted in the redemption he has provided are as secure as that throne is sure. As we read in 2 Timothy 2.19, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. So here is the security of the saints. From this same throne of God, which bears the seal of the safety of his Son, proceed the judgments which ensure the doom of those who have refused to recognize his authority and who have announced that they would not have this man to reign over them. Another reason why the throne of God is here presented to us under its symbol of the ark is because that symbol so surely reminds us of God's relationship with the children of Israel. The church of Jesus Christ is not seen in this portion of the book of Revelation except enthroned in heaven. The travail and pain of those who are to be purified in the tribulation and the tortures of those who will be judged with no further mercy cannot point in any way to the redeemed host of the saints of this present age. All of this section of the book, wherever concerned with any portion of the elect, shows us God's dealings with his earthly Israel. At this point, John is given another vision. Signs and wonders appear in heaven. The first is that of a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and with a coronet of twelve stars upon her head. Once more we turn to the concordance, and the symbols of the Old Testament will soon inform us of the identity of this personage, made glorious by the gift of God. Most expositors have seen clearly that this woman represents the nation Israel. But I have stopped with that simple identification. We believe that there is something more in view here. 
The rest of this chapter is going to reveal to us that there is war in the spiritual realm and that this war is a great controversy, ages long, for the control of the universe. The war began with the fall of Satan and will continue until the great and terrible day of the Lord shall bring this war to a close. The woman, then, represents not merely Israel, from whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, but is that spiritual body of the elect from the very beginning of the history of man, by whom God had eternally purposed to bring to naught the revolt of Satan. All of the symbols mentioned in these verses are found in the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis. The woman, the sun, the moon, the stars, the man-child, the seed, the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, all of these are to be found in the opening paragraphs of the Bible. Those who know the book of Genesis well realize that Satan must have existed before he appeared in the third chapter. The rest of the Bible presents to us this malignant figure as having once been among the angels of God. When did he fall? There is a mass of evidence, a great deal of which has been collected in G.K. Pember's book, Earth's Earliest Ages, which demonstrates beyond doubt that there was a long interval between the first creation, described in the first sublime sentence of the Bible, and the chaos of the second verse. It was during this interval that the war in heaven was begun by Lucifer's rebellion. God's next revealed move was the creation of man, to whom was committed all of the symbols of authority. The sun, moon, stars, as we have seen in other passages, are symbols of authority. God purposed eternally that all authority should be gathered together in Christ. He proceeds to this end, however, by way of the Garden of Eden, the cross of Calvary, and the return of the Lord in glory. As soon as Satan had intruded into the new creation which God had made, thinking to have gained a great victory by accomplishing the fall of the man and the woman, God proceeded to announce in prophecy that which is here portrayed in Revelation as a great drama in the spiritual warfare in the heavenly places. The great curse upon Satan was announced in terms which included the promise of the Redeemer and the triumph of God. And the Lord said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this thing, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I've read from Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. That which we read in these terms in the book of Genesis as referring to the earthly struggle involving Adam, Eve, and Satan, is presented to us in the twelfth of Revelation as being a part of the spiritual warfare which we shall someday realize is but a tiny corner of the whole battlefield, though the scene of the decisive struggle and the victory of God. God created the woman who represents the elect of the human race in order that she might become the channel of his redemption. We must look beyond mere Israel to the greater vision of the whole plan of redemption. This is revealed in Galatians in a very beautiful way. Speaking of the inviolability of the covenants of God, Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now here God definitely takes the promises out of the realm of the mere literal progeny of Abraham and back to the third of Genesis, where we see that Jesus Christ was in view. Why was there a chosen people? In order that there might be a line for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was there a holy land? in order that there might be a place to erect the cross, to crucify the Lord Jesus. 
These were the chief elements in the divine strategy. So the identification of this woman clothed with all the authority of God is certain. She represents that spiritual Israel that is more than Israel. It goes backwards through the line of the seed to Eve and forwards through the line of the seed to Mary and the Lord Jesus. We must not forget that the enmity of Satan came against this people because they have been chosen as the channel of the power and blessing of God. It may have seemed for a moment that the fall of man caused the plans of God to be frustrated. But the great promise which we have seen brought the matter clearly out into the realms of a promise of victory. God had promised. And what he had promised, he will fulfill. Between the second and third verses of our chapter, we see that the woman who was clothed with all authority is presented as crying with great travail. The entrance of sin into the human race, the fall, has taken place between the two verses. Nevertheless, the promises of God are sure and certain in Christ, and he will bring his victory in his own time, even though the following verse in Genesis announces that the woman shall bring forth her children in sorrow. Many verses speak of the sorrows of Israel under the figure of a woman in travail. The identification of the dragon with Satan is made by the Lord himself in the ninth verse. We need not therefore pause to emphasize the fact. The red color is an interesting symbol. There are many Greek words to describe varying shades of red, from pink through scarlet and crimson. The word comes from the Greek word for fire and makes us think of his ferocity and cruelty. The dragon has seven heads, each with a diadem, and is pictured with ten horns. These symbols are easily determined in the light of all that we have already seen. Satan has a kingdom, and God put it into his hands, and has not yet taken it from him. When he came to Christ at the temptation, he showed the kingdoms of this world and said, all this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. The figure seven is the symbol of that completeness of authority, and the diadems are the crowns of power given by God, the ten horns, the universal nature of his earth rule. These symbols bring into sharp relief the power that is committed into the hands of Satan, and which he will use to the utmost of his strength in the last desperate effort, which is to be described in the coming verse, where Satan is spoken of as having great wrath because he knows that he hath but a short time. The next clause gives us one more glimpse of the beginning of that heavenly struggle in the time before the world was. It says, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and he cast them to the earth. Of all the verses where the stars are mentioned, there are some which point to a certain identification for this symbol. The demonized apostates described by Jude are presented as wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. All of the angel hosts were created by God, and creation by God implies perfection. Some of them followed Satan in his rebellion. And of these he is still the ruler, still today the ruler. Satan's angelic hosts of verse 7 are evidently the stars of verse 4. One commentator has said, remembering that he is a liar and the father of it, we get the thought that it was through some falsehood that the devil drew the angels after him into rebellion against God, even as by a lie he seduced the woman at the beginning. The ground of this revolt of the angels may be inferred from Hebrews 1.5, where it's recorded of God the Father that when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now in casting them down to earth, we have perhaps an indication that Satan 
as a part of his strategy against God, is now about to withdraw his forces from the air, of whose power he is the prince, and marshal them upon the earth for the final conflict on this front. Some may object that we speak of events that are yet to take place, in the same breath with events which took place when our Lord was born into this world almost two thousand years ago. We must not forget that the present scene that we are looking at in Revelation is speaking of the whole age-long conflict, and the details are telescoped into one small picture. Between events that may seem far apart to us because we are living in them, in time, there is but an instant so far as God is concerned. Speaking of Israel in another great passage under the same image as the one presented here, namely a travailing woman, God says in Isaiah 54, For the Lord hath called thee as a woman, forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies shall I gather thee. There has always been enmity, hatred, between Satan and the woman, and every moment of her history, whether it be in the garden, or at the birth of Cain and Abel, or against the whole line of her sons, from whom the Messiah was to be born. At his birth there was weeping in Ramah because of the slaughter of the innocents in Satan's effort to reach the Lord. The life of the Lord was sought many times before his hour came. Israel has borne the enmity, the hatred of association with the promises of God, and Satan still seeks to destroy them. But God's purposes will not be foiled. It is Christ who shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. He overcame the enemy and was caught up to the throne of God. The elect of God's purposes, and at this point it's Israel according to the flesh, is still hidden in the world as the hid treasure was found in the parable and then hidden again. My duty as a commentator is to point out that many who have preceded us have believed this verse to refer to the present scattering of Israel throughout the world. I do not know. We are inclined to believe that it is definite, literal, future, and limited to the 1,260 days. This number has appeared too often in this book and has been too well balanced by other teachings to attempt to find in it a symbol. In fact, we believe that this announcement in verse 6 is the first mention of that which is given to us in detail in the end of the chapter. We shall see more of this in our next study. And our God and Father, we ask thee to bless the truth to many hearts and use it to thy glory in Jesus' name. Amen.